Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We sometimes feel like we are blown around by the chaotic winds of the world. However, the prevailing wind of the Holy Spirit blows us towards our appointed destination with our Lord. You're listening to Appointed for Eternal Life by Rev. Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this morning is from the the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13. I will read verses 42, not 44, 42 through 52. Um, And I should say before I read it, uh, you'll notice that this is not going to be a chronological series. There's a series, this series on Acts started last week. It's going to go all through the summer. And I'm not going to do it chronologically. I'm going to try to hit major themes in the book so that we can become acquainted with the major themes of the book. Um, I, I know we lose something when we do that. It's really good to have a chronological reading of the book. Even if you think you know the story of Acts, it's, it's good to reread a book because you always hear things and see things that you didn't realize that were there the first time. So even as I'm not being chronological, I urge you to reread the book this summer um, for family devotions, on your own, maybe a chapter a day, or sit down and read it all at once. Go through the book, familiarize yourself with it, and hopefully my sermons, our sermons, will help you hear new echoes, new things in this book. But for today, let's start with verse 42. Paul is in a, a town called Pisidian Antioch which is in Asia. He's just finished giving a sermon at the synagogue, said Jesus is the Messiah according to God's plans, and now we're going to hear the reaction. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying, and they heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it. And do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jewish leaders incited God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So Paul and Barnabas shook the dust from their feet as a warning to them and went off to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. So Paul's on one of his missionary journeys. He goes to Pisidian Antioch. He preaches in the synagogue. And what we've just read is is a pretty typical reaction that Paul gets when he comes to a new town and preaches in the synagogue. Some people believe 
They accept Jesus as the Messiah. And some people do not believe. And generally speaking, those people who do not believe become increasingly hostile. And as we see here, they heap abuse on Paul and finally get him expelled with Barnabas from town. That's a pattern you see throughout Paul's missionary journeys. What's interesting in our passage, and what I want to draw your attention to, is the reason that Luke, the author of Acts, gives for why some people believe and why some people don't believe. Luke says in verse 48, all who were appointed for eternal life believed. All who were appointed for eternal life believed, almost like God had decided beforehand who was going to accept the gospel and who wasn't. That reminds me of a doctrine that we have. Maybe it reminds you of one too, the doctrine of election, right? The doctrine of predestination. If you grew up Reformed or Christian Reformed, you know that doctrine. It's taught in our confessions, especially in the canons of Dort. It's something that we believe that the Bible teaches. We point to verses like verse 48 to support the doctrine of election. And for those of you who did not grow up in our tradition or for those of you who have forgotten your catechism, let me remind you what the doctrine of election teaches. It teaches that when we are saved, we're not saved because of something we do. We are saved because we are elected, chosen by God. And that choice was from eternity. It wasn't something in time. It was something he did before the dawn of time. And his choosing of us for salvation is not because he looked at us ahead of time and foresaw that we would be good people. It wasn't that he thought, oh, these are the nice people and out there are the, the nasty and mean people, so I'll choose them and not choose the others. No. The doctrine of election says we are chosen even though we're no better than those people. It's only God's grace and his good pleasure that had him choose us. That's the doctrine of election, and it's meant to give tremendous assurance, but it also brings a tremendous amount of questions. And the questions are, of course, the flip side of that. If God appoints some to salvation, the other side of that is that there are some who are not appointed. He chooses some, but he doesn't choose others. And, and those people he doesn't choose are not because they are worse or more wicked than we are. Again, it's just his good pleasure. It's just his choosing. He appoints some and he, he doesn't appoint others. And it, that, that's just... And that makes us, makes us squirm. The idea that there are people who are born into this world and in temporal terms never have a chance at salvation because they're not appointed... That makes us uncomfortable. I see some of you look uncomfortable. And if you are uncomfortable, and, and you say maybe, and this is what we do, right? We go back to the, the text and say, well, maybe in the original Greek it's different. But if you go back to the original Greek, this is very clear. We're reading the NIV. It says it was appointed for eternal life. If you go to the KJV or the NRSV or the ESV or any other V you want, this is the language that you see, the language of appointment, the language of choice ahead of time. And here's where this becomes important. It's not just something that's a one-off thing in verse 48. If you go through the whole book of Acts, 
this theme of God's foreordaining and foreknowledge is a kind of theme in Acts. If you read through it, you will see it. And let me just give you some of the examples of where you see this predestinarian theme show up. Acts 2 verse 23. Peter's preaching his Pentecost sermon. And in his Pentecost sermon, he's talking about how the Jews handed over Jesus to be crucified. And he says this, verse 23, this man Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. Deliberate plan and foreknowledge, right? Sounds like predestination. Flip ahead two chapters. Acts chapter 4, verse 28. Now the believers are, are praying a prayer together. They're all together praying. And in their prayer they say that when Herod and Pilate chose to sentence Jesus to death, now I'm quoting, Lord, they did what your power and your will decided beforehand should happen. Again, right? Sounds like predestination, foreknowledge. Acts 18, verse 10, Paul is in Corinth, and he's getting a lot of resistance. It's very frustrating, and the Lord comes to him in a vision and says to him, Paul, don't give up, because I have many people in this city. Almost like there's people in Corinth that God has already appointed for eternal life. One more example, Acts 5, verse 39, the famous speech of Gamaliel. Maybe you remember the speech of the Pharisee Gamaliel. In the synagogue, not in the synagogue, in the Sanhedrin, they're deliberating about whether or not to execute Peter and John when they're holding them prisoner. And Gamaliel, the Pharisee, stands up and he says, guys, uh, if this Jesus thing is just a human thing, it'll go away. But if this Jesus thing is of God, you can't stop it because you'll be fighting against God. Again, you hear that? Sort of foreknowledge, appointment. Okay, so, in the book of Acts, is Luke trying to teach us the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, as we find it in the Canons of Dort, or as we might read it in Calvin's Institutes? I suggest to you that the answer to that question is no. No, he is not trying to teach us the theological formulation of that doctrine. And that's not me saying I don't support the doctrine of predestination or election. That would get me in big trouble. I'm not saying that. And I owe you, having brought up the subject, I owe you a sermon on election. But if I preach that sermon, and when I preach that sermon, it will not be on the book of Acts. It will be on Romans 9 through 11. Because that's where Paul talks very specifically about who is chosen and when they are chosen and why they are chosen, okay? When Luke sat down and put, dipped his quill in the inkwell and started to write the book of Acts, he was not thinking of election as a theological formulation. He was thinking of something much different. What was Luke thinking of? Well, to get a sense of what that is, we need to understand the situation of the church to whom Luke was writing. And it was a precarious situation. The early church was under enormous stress, both in Jerusalem and Paul himself as he did his missionary journeys. In Jerusalem, things start out well for the early church, right? Last 
week we talked about Pentecost, the Spirit comes, 3,000 people converted, everybody speaks well of them. But by the time you get from chapter 2 to chapter 4, Paul and John are in jail and facing death. By the time you get to chapter 7, Stephen has been stoned to death by an angry mob. Immediately after that, this systematic persecution starts, and the members of the church have to scatter. They have to flee all over to get away from Jerusalem. And by the time you get to Acts chapter 12, James, who's one of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John, that James has been executed by Herod. So already by chapter 12, the church is a church on the run. They're refugees. They're trying to get away. They're trying to hide because of this persecution. Life is difficult for the church. And life is extremely difficult for Paul on his missionary journeys. Here in Pisidian Antioch, he has people coming against him in persecution who kick him out of town. So he goes to Iconium. What happens in Iconium? People start making death threats against him. He has to leave that town. In Ephesus, in Ephesus, he's almost torn apart by a riot. In Philippi, he's thrown in a dungeon and flogged. And in Lystra, he's stoned to death, or at least the people in Lystra think he's dead. They leave him for dead on the edge of the city, and he has to be rescued by others. So there's this enormous pressure on Paul, and if you think that that pressure didn't get to Paul, you're wrong. If you have the impression that when Paul went from town to town and faced all this opposition and faced people heaping abuse on him, that somehow he was just able to walk through that like a faith superstar. You're wrong. This affected him deeply. Paul would lie awake in the middle of the night and wonder, Lord, what are you doing? Why do I say that? Because Paul tells us. 2 Corinthians 1. He talks about the struggles he faced in Asia. Pisidian Antioch is in Asia. And when he writes about those troubles, he says, it was more than I could take. I despaired of life itself. So Paul is lying in his bed and saying, Lord, I cannot do this anymore. I would rather be dead. That's a place of despair. That's a place of real trouble. That's the place where Paul was. Everything seemed to be going wrong. Everything seemed to be chaotic and senseless. And that's how we all feel in the midst of our chaotic troubles. Like we're being blown around by a random wind and nothing makes sense. Your daughter is struggling with anxiety. And you've tried everything. You've taken her one counselor, two counselor. It just doesn't get any better. And day after day, you're in the middle of the night, you're, you're in her room, rubbing her back, trying to get her to calm down, and it just doesn't seem to be getting any better. It feels senseless. It feels like you're being blown around by a wind. You go to the hospital because your heart has been bad for a long time, and you're finally going to get a scan on your heart. And you get a scan on your heart, and the doctor tells you that in addition to your heart problems, he finds a spot on your lung and it's cancer. Senseless. Feels like you're being blown around by a wind. The business that you spent your whole life building, 
You've worked so hard to make this business go, and all of a sudden it's starting to change. People's demands have changed, and the pandemic has, has completely changed the, 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 the cost structure of things and the way things are delivered. And you're working 80, 90 hours a week, and it doesn't matter. The business is going down, and it just feels senseless, like you're being blown around by a random wind. That's how it feels when you're in the middle of the trouble. Now, we don't know when Luke wrote the book of Acts, but we do know this, it wasn't in the middle of the trouble. He did not write about Pisidian Antioch, he did not write about Lystra when he was in Lystra and when he was in Pisidian Antioch. Sometime after the journey was over, he sat down and wrote his book. In the middle of the trouble, everything seemed chaotic, but at the end, when he looked back, he realized there was a plan and a purpose, even in the chaos. In the middle of the trouble, it felt like he was being blown around by random winds, but afterwards, as he looked back, he realized that there was a prevailing wind blowing everything towards God's appointed purpose. That's why you have verses like verse 48 and all those other verses that I cited at the beginning of this chapter. That's why Luke talks about all those being appointed for eternal life believing. All those predestinarian words, all those predestinarian phrases are Luke's way of reminding a church under pressure that things are not random, things are not chaotic, there is a prevailing wind blowing them forward. And if you read the book of Acts, there's all sorts of places where that notion comes through. Acts chapter 11. There's a little story that you can read right through if you're not careful. After the persecution that comes after Stephen's stoning, the church is scattered all over the Near East. And while they're, you know, they're under stress and they're sad, they're refugees, life is not easy. When they go, they take the gospel with them. And then they come to their new towns and they start preaching the gospel. And so all these new churches start to spring up all over the place because of the persecution. And, and one of the churches is in a place called Antioch. And in Antioch, the Christians don't just preach to the Jews and in the synagogue, they preach to the Greeks. They preach to the, the people who are complete pagans, and they start to believe too. And what you have is the very first multicultural church. And the church in Antioch becomes this, this anchor point for all the missionaries. That's where Paul gets sent on his missionary journeys from. It felt like chaos, but there was a prevailing wind. In the infusion room, where they're about for the very first time to put the chemo into your pick line and the nurses inserting the line into the pick line. I don't know why you're there. I don't know why this is happening, but I promise you in that place, the prevailing wind of the Spirit is blowing you towards your appointed destination in Jesus Christ your Lord. As you sit there at three in the morning rubbing your daughter's back, trying to get her to calm down over the anxiety. I don't know why God let that anxiety come into your daughter's life, but I promise you the prevailing wind of the Holy Spirit is blowing both of you towards your appointed end in Christ Jesus your Lord. 
as you sit at your desk and look at all the, the numbers from your business and know that it's going down, I don't know why that's happening to you, but I promise you, the prevailing wind of the Spirit is blowing you towards your appointed end in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Thinking about this this week made me think of a, a story from the Narnia Chronicles. I think most of you know the Narnia Chronicles, right? I, I, don't, I don't want to assume every, everybody knows the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. This is a story from the Silver Chair. And if the Narnia series is, of course, about these, these human children who get taken to this land of Narnia where they have adventures and, and things that they are called to do. And the Christ figure in that world is Aslan, the lion, right? Well, in the silver chair, two English children, Jill and Eustace, are summoned to Narnia by Aslan. Well, they don't know it yet. So they're walking in behind their school and they go through a gate and all of a sudden, they're not in England anymore. They're in this strange wood with these enormous trees and these strange birds flying around. And it's very quiet. And so they wander through this wood and they wonder where they are. And as they wander, all of a sudden, the wood gives way and they come to the edge of a cliff. Eustace is afraid of heights, so he steps back from the edge of the cliff. Jill is not afraid of heights and she thinks that Eustace is being a wimp. And so just to show him, out of her pride, she steps forward. And she stands right at the edge of the cliff and she looks down just to show him. Only when she looks down, she realizes this cliff is incredibly high, higher than any cliff in our world, tens of thousands of feet high. And so she starts to get, suddenly she has vertigo and she starts to reel and Eustace sees it and he reaches out to grab her. And in her panic, she grabs Eustace and pulls him, and he falls over the cliff with a scream. And just at that moment, a lion leaps up beside Jill and starts to blow. And this tremendous wind comes out of his mouth and lifts up Eustace and carries him safely all the way down to the floor beneath the cliff. Because it turns out, that Aslan has a purpose for those two, a mission for those two, and nothing is going to stop him from bringing them to their appointed end. I know that many of you feel like you're in the midst of chaos now. And you have no idea why this is happening to you and no idea how to make it go away. And I can't explain it to you either right now, but I promise you, the prevailing wind of the Spirit is blowing in your life and he will carry all of us to our appointed end. Amen. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this place. When we're in the midst of life, when we're dealing with the pressures and the problems that we have, Lord, we, we easily get overwhelmed. But here in this place, we can see all the way to the new creation. We can see all the way to your end, and we can see that there is a purpose and a plan, even if we don't always understand what that is. Lord, let your wind of your Spirit blow in our lives, and Holy Spirit, fill our hearts so that we may serve you in this world with courage and joy. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.